Hey, hi, hi everyone. How are you? Are you good tonight? We are so thrilled you're here at SLAM, which for those of you who do not know, stands for Streb Lab for Action Mechanics, for uh, coming here to hear four of us talk about uh, things we're going to ask you to talk about as well. And this is Elizabeth Streb. <laughs> and this is Laura Flanders. <laughs> and I just want to thank you for being our inaugural guests and participant collaborators at the inaugural meeting of Risky Talking, a new series of live conversations about creativity, risk, and change. So let's introduce our guest. Yes. I have the great pleasure of introducing Majora Carter. She is the internationally renowned urban revitalization strategy consultant, a real estate developer, and a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster. Majora Carter. Please put your hands together. <laughs> and I would like to introduce, it is my great honor to introduce Bill T. Jones, the head, the, the choreographer, the artistic director of Bill T. Jones' Arnie Zane Dance Company, and the artistic director of New York Live Arts, Will you, and a Tony winner, a MacArthur winner. He is one of the greatest choreographers on earth, and I am working hard to make friends with him in the last few years. <laughs> Bill T., will you please take the stage? Welcome to Risky Talking. The biggest risk I think I face right now is that I'm here alone with three MacArthur Genius Award winners. <laughs> but I am very excited because I'm surrounded and we are with some of the most extraordinary makers, creators, releasers. We're going to be talking about creating space that allows creativity and risk and change about generosity, about ambition, about vulnerability, risk, and we're gonna be hearing from you. But I wanna kick off by asking our friends here. I've shared a couple of risks on my, my mind. <laughs> What's one on yours, Majora? How do I continue to be as loud and proud and black and female as I am and not scare people. Elizabeth. I am interested now that I'm at this moment in my action, extreme action invention um, journey to see if I can defamiliarize my habit of asking questions and start to notice something in the world that I've just never noticed before. To try to take my attention to places that are right in front of me, mm. but I never thought as critical or salient. Mm. And my risk is what I said to uh, a confidant just the other day, is to actually not say, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but actually say, I am going to make this happen. Mm. Well, that gets my next question for you. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth and I were lucky enough to go and see a right, your extraordinary co-production with Anne Bogart and the City Company of Anne. Mm -hmm. 
that took us back to 1913 and the Rite of Spring. And I wondered what it was like for you to go back to that moment, that sort of edge of something moment, 1913, mm -hmm. to a moment where people in the culture didn't know what was coming next, World War I and all that followed. And how does that compare in your mind today? Do you feel like we're at an edge of something moment? And if so, what? Um, are we at the edge of something? You know, we're always at the edge, aren't we? Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that's the reality that we are. Are, you, are we? I am one of those persons who is waiting for the next 9-11 in our town. Whenever I'm in a group of people and um, talking to my companion Bjorn, walking in Washington on the mall one day, and I say, this is remarkable. Look how relaxed all of these people are. Do you know how many places there are in the world right now that people do no longer walk in a relaxed way in big groups? We are naive and we have it coming. Uh, now, is that just a, a kind of a negative downer attitude about the world? You say it about 1913? Could they know? Some people knew what was happening in 1914, what was going to happen. Um, do we dare know? And what do you do with such knowledge? Yeah. What do you do with such knowledge? My risk is not to say, well, what can I do? Fatalism and cynicism. A friend of mine told me recently, uh, cynicism is for chumps. <laughs> True that. I never heard it put that way. Mm -hmm. uh, he says it's easy. Cynicism mm -hmm. is easy. So if it's inevitable, and you know, everybody else in the world is getting punched every day, am I ready? <laughs> am I ready? Am I made of the stuff? Do I want to be on the subway with you uh, when that happens? Who in this room? So my, and my equivalent question for you, Majora, has to do with Sandy. It's the anniversary of Sandy. We're a block from the water. Mm -hmm. The hurricane hit a year ago this week. Um, are we at risk? Yes. Yeah. Don't want a nutshell. Yes. Um, we're at risk and, you know, at the, the risk of sounding fatalistic. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I also think just being real about it is that we can adapt to things. And, and I think, you know, where we were, at least politically, you know, in this country, we didn't even want to deal with that. So it's just like, you know, with the climate's changing, you know, how do we adapt to the fact that we're going to be dealing with crazy storm surges and all this kind of stuff? And how are we going to deal with the fact that it's actually the most vulnerable parts of our population, the poorest, that are generally going to be dealing with it? Like, there's still people in public housing right now in New York City that don't have power because of Sandy. And, um, so those type of things, like, you know, are we doing everything that we can to support that? And, and, and in particular, when, we, when it comes down to planning, because we don't necessarily think about how real estate development or how community planning or urban planning is, is designed to support the least among us. It's really mostly about how do we do it to support, you know, the, those of us that have a lot more. And, and those are the kind of questions when I think about Sandy um, or I think about any other place in the country that is going to be dealing with the impact of, of climate change in particular, I want to hear those questions be asked. And it is difficult because we don't really deal with poor people in um, ways that are particularly helpful often. 
rising water. <laughs> I'm worried about inequality. I read today that the uh, net wealth of the top 400, the richest 400 Forbes list, has doubled in 10 years. Their net wealth is now something like just over $2 trillion, which is equivalent to the GDP of Russia. And this very day, we're cutting food stamps yes. for 3.1 million people, yeah. including 1.2 million kids. We, want to, we think we can jumpstart an economy like that? Yeah. Elizabeth, we're counting on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I veer to the abstract zone, and I think that my fear, and I always feel, I wake up in the morning and I have to ask myself, hey, you know, there are people who are not sheltered, there are people going hungry, and I make extreme action. Is there any chance that this extreme action could serve as metaphor, a powerful enough metaphor to hold content? The way things move, they're so pure. And when sometimes you encounter something that's so true and pure, it needs no interpreter. And mm. I attempt to do that in action. Like, you don't have to have taken Modern Dance 101, or even 102 to know something when you see it. Mm. So I, I am trying to not, um, I'm trying to notice my accidents and not focus on plans. Mm. I'm trying to collect events that the every person could, could, could see. And in terms of, of the floods and, 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 and you know, I, I agree with you, Bill, about 9-11. I mean, give me a break, it was one day, uh -huh, uh -huh. you know. Yeah. And ever since then, we've been wreaking havoc all over the world and had for years. So I'm, I'm not sentimental about that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Or fortunately, and I don't really. I think it's a class thing. I really expect. To, I don't care if I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time, and all hell breaks loose, and I burst into dust. That's actually one of my action dreams: to burst into dust. I can. Sorry, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. You're gonna leave us with bursting into dust. <laughs> well, I, I, I. I mean, Tim, there's um, an editor of Outside Magazine who isn't anymore the editor, I don't think. His name is, is Tim Cahill. And he said this quote, the explorer is a person who is lost. Um, and I think that if I, if I think I know what I'm looking for when I start inventing something, then I know I'm doing what I did before. Wow. What I'm looking for is the mystery of action and setting up a condition that will either shock or surprise, I mean, again, as long as I, I notice it. I'm hearing something about creating places, spaces, pieces, art that support change, support going, people going to the edge, support risk taking, something new being born. Uh, do you grapple with that at New York I do. I, I was, I was, I wasn't sure if I really um, was right for the panel tonight because I'm I am burdened with ambiguity. I mean, you used to think it was cool, you know? I'm middle-aged now, right? And um, the ambiguity of uh, why make another work? You know, why? Why do you do that? Or do you, is it habit? What happened to the old fire when everything was coming literally from your loins and from your heart and, you know, you said to continue speaking loud as a, as a, a black woman and all? I speak all the time now. I'm in universities, I'm talking, I have groups of young folks there taking notes, you know. <laughs> you know I do, that's, that's, that's part of what I do since mm -hmm. I'm not dancing. And there, is, and there is that creeping sense that you are a sham. Oh. 
And uh, yeah, and, that, and that's really like, that's, that's soul killing. Yeah. So coming here tonight and being with people who are on fire, um, and I think am I, uh, can I ever hope to be on fire? Or is there something in, in, where, in the muddle right now, in the muddle, that maybe that's the new thing you're talking about, seeing something different, you know? I have the in infrastructure of a Southern Baptist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally, let's face it, you know? <laughs> I do, I have the, input, the emotional infrastructure. But what does that mean? Well, yeah, what do you think, Well, I wanna be ready. <laughs> I need to be ready. I want to be ready. Ready to put on the long white robe. Now, what is that? That's the sound. That's, that's the just sound. beautiful. That's yeah, the sound. That's yeah, it. it's beautiful, but it's the sound of slaves. Yeah. And what do they believe? This bill of goods that there is a better world coming. Somewhere. Over and that you're going to have to go through a trial to get there. Ambiguity. Irony, all those that good stuff they taught us in the art world, it worked for a long time. But is it the thing that's going to like get me there, right? Majora, mm -hmm. do you want to come in on that? Yeah. Um, going back to a little bit of what you were saying, that you're know, feeling this sort of ambiguity, but also what we do right now, we do talk. We talk mm -hmm. about our work because you know what? We're kind of like legends in our own time, and people want to know, and all that kind of stuff. And and yeah, the whole I'm always cracking up when I read something about myself in a textbook and crap like that. And um, but I remember during the time, but 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 you said something that was so fabulous. Like the second when you think you know what you're doing, you already know that you're doing the same thing you did before. Mm. And that is what was soul killing to me. Like because what I found about talking about my work meant that I wasn't doing my work. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't figuring out like, what's the next thing? What's the thing that is going to like flip people mm -hmm. and make people think about the environment and the economy in a different way that really could increase the, the so that folks that came up from the great migration or at least the descendants mm -hmm. of them wouldn't feel as though they've got to die in order to have a better mm -hmm. place to be. Mm -hmm. And you know, that we can create the kind of kingdom that we want to live in right now that creates, that helps people move out of poverty, that creates the kind of environment that people want to be in. And, and I was like, and it was killing me that I wasn't, that I was just talking about old stuff. And you know, good stuff, I mean, I stand by my work, but it was, there was something to it that made me feel completely illegitimate. You talk, the, the Majora Carter group does consulting and one of the things you offer is that you will help people find the hidden potential in their neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And it's so fascinating listening to each, each of you and, and hearing what you just said Majora made me think about the fact that each of us is engaged in a project that yes is driven by our, ourselves with our wonderful teams, um, has a goal kind yes. of, has a motivation but is also about eliciting some kind of response and some kind of engagement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You talked years ago about evoking a spirit of survival, encouraging people, evoking a sense of enthusiasm. I work in my media and I've worked in television and radio and print and I get bored and I move to the next one because I think maybe that one will be the one. Mm. Um, that will be the interesting, finally, place of meeting. Yeah. Um, how do we come to terms with that, with, with creating space for others, mm. but we're doing the creating. 
I'm at a point right now where I feel that um, you've got, I'm talking to the man in the mirror, you've got to justify for me why it's you. There are, in this room, I'm sure, there are already people behind you who are just dying to get that microphone. <laughs> and they have, uh, they have great ideas. Yeah. So why are your ass still standing there, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. that. So, and this, is, is it purely ego? Is it habit, you know? Why, um, why are you still in the game? Mm -hmm. So once again, who in the hell are you? Mm -hmm. You know, and there is Georgia O'Keeffe. They asked her, how did she keep going all those years out in, the, out in the New Mexico, cold winters, lonely? She said, well, out of spite. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that element as well. Yeah. Some of it is, I'll be damned. Mm -hmm. I'll be damned. Now, that's not the best, uh, most generous, but sometimes that's the only voice you can listen to. Um, I'll be damned if I let them tell me. Uh, this is where I'm at. Mm -hmm. How to be generous and also right. dukes up. And you put it as how do you create places that can be messed up? How do you create spaces that leave space for something messy to happen? Mm. I'm just gonna speak out of turn here. I was at Bam Fisher the other day and I was watching a choreographer and there was this grand piano that was hung by the ceiling. I don't know if anyone saw that. And, I, and there was modern dance going on also. Um, but I kept looking at that grand piano <laughs> and I was thinking they would never drop it. They would never drop it because they cared too much about the space and I suppose about the audience. It might shatter. They cared too much about the piano. And for all the reasons, why would you tempt me like that? <laughs> and I was thinking, I was thinking about, about a quote that Eleanor Roosevelt said, like, do something every day that scares you. Mm -hmm. Just once a day scares that you. scares you. Eleanor Roosevelt said that. Oh, yeah. She said that. Um, and I was thinking of the theme of this, risk. So what's a sister of risk? Probably, probably fear, you know, and then danger is part of that. And then I thought, so let's say they're all three. And then the other thing I think that you can't subtract from the equation is failure. Yes. Yeah. And maybe you, I'm more afraid, I'm, I'm not really that afraid of getting hurt, as long as I don't do it in public. Because <laughs> at that point I would be humiliated. But the notion that you could think of something, like it would cross your mind, like dropping that piano, or, or Matt Macadon, his dance with the wrecking ball, like dropping a wrecking ball in a building. Huh. Um, everyone's afraid it would take the building down. But of course you don't know because you haven't tried it. So when we construct something, let's say it is abstract, because I'm speaking sort of abstractly, but I notice that almost every, at every turn, I myself have to uh, stick in a caveat. Okay, I want to do this crazy thing, but of course it would hurt the room. It would maybe hurt the people that are sitting too close. It would make, and then you just can't have any fun anymore. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, just because I'm dogged and out of spite, I'm gonna keep asking my question. Um, because part of the motivation of this series was to talk about how would politics, how would development, how would real estate, how would our lives be different if artists were at the table, if creative thinkers were at the table. Um, so I'm gonna try you, Majora. How do we create spaces where creativity can happen. How do you do this unlocking potential? It's a collaborative process and you have to be very open to strange bedfellows and usually the stranger the better. Um, 
because you realize, you know, especially in, in my line of work, you really can't get a whole lot of things done unless you're, you know, working across the aisle, playing with a lot of different with folks. So give us an example. We're really trying to disrupt how real estate development is done in, in poor communities right now. And, um, you know, our we think that affordable housing concentrates poverty and all the ills associated with it which we know is going to go over really big, you know, with a lot of affordable housing advocates, but I'm have not seen anything over the past years that I've worked in um, or places that I've worked in where that kind of band-aid approach to poor communities does anything except continues to make them poor. And so how do we create opportunities for economic diversity that support people to move up and out of poverty and retain, you know, the the ones Bright flight, you know, in those communities, many people are taught to measure success by how far they leave those communities. And we're trying to create, orchestrate a strategy that recognizes the power and the talent that's in those communities, culturally, socially, um, and create new forms economically to support that. Um, and, you know, we're, we know there's going to be no small amount of, um, of drama that's associated with it, but I'm really excited about having a very practical approach to supporting people and helping them see that their lives are of value. So before everyone says, she's against affordable housing, um, I don't care. what do you mean? I'm trying to harness the power of gentrification. Like, I gotta tell you, it's been really interesting. Every time I, you know, it's, I have, I used to hang out in Williamsburg when it was a lot more diverse. <laughs> And, and you know, and it's great, you know, I'm like, wow, look at all this stuff here. And, um, but I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like, it's only white people for the most part. And, and I'm like, why is it that we save the best of development only for, for folks, you know, of a certain class, it's not even poor white, so sorry, um, you know, who, of a certain class of folks. And, and, and that kind of boggles my mind. I think it just, just screams against every piece of, of the, the, the piece of American in me that still believes in the promise of America. And I know that there are great possibilities. You know, poor people like living in nice places too. And if we can look before, because look, everybody knew Williamsburg was gonna happen years ago. But was there anybody saying, how do we create models here that reduce displacement, that prepare people to participate in the economic booms that are coming here, that secure their rights for them to, to either keep and retain some of the real estate here so that they benefit from it? And Harlem, too. You could, there's like tons of places. It's not just, I don't mean to pick on Williamsburg. Um, but You can pick on Williamsburg. Okay, great. And, uh, I want to see that kind of model, the, the kind of model that we are pushing, um, happening around the country. You know, starting in my own community in the South Bronx. But the whole point is, is that I don't think it's that hard. The same way that we use real estate development to concentrate part, uh, poverty, we can also use it to reduce its impact. We really can do that through a very strategic mix of economic development and housing. So instead and, of Red lining, you'd have like rainbow lining. Yeah, like why can't we build like 
quote unquote affordable housing, you know, in some of the wealthier communities and do it in a very, in a cool way where it's nice and it doesn't look ghettoized and stupid. Um, or, you know, why can't we set up the kind of things that middle class people would like in poor communities to make it so that they'd want to stay? So that guess what? Everybody benefits. It's look, possible. Listen. Well, I'm so curious about that because I, I get asked a lot. You know, we came in here at the cusp of the gentrification. I, I didn't think it was already happening. We came in here in, in 03 and um, trying to figure out how do you make this public. We're trying to figure out how do you alter the facade so that the every person would stop and it would evoke utter curiosity and wonder first, yeah. not oh, that's glass and steel and yeah. brick and I can't go in there. Uh -huh. What are the coded um, messages coded. That, are, that are out there loud yeah. and people walk, most people walk by? So I am perplexed by figuring out, mm -hmm. you know, how do you, I mean, I think one, you get a, uh, a, a company on stage that represents the world. Huh. You know, that would be the first thing. But the, the, that is, you know, a, something that, you know, I'm completely dedicated to. But yeah. it's the class thing. Yeah. Look. It's the class thing that I don't have any idea what right. to do about. I'm a coded message. You're a coded message? In my own neighborhood. How, how do you do that? Um, I'm considered successful by uh, many community residents who have seen my work or whatever. And it's out there. And... And so if they don't see me leaving my house, they'll, and if they haven't seen me in a little while, they'll say things like, oh, Majora, where, 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 do, you where do you live now? With the subtext being, like, you can't possibly live here because you're successful, and thus successful people do not live in communities like this. And that kills me more than anything because it's not a reflection on me. It's a reflection on how they see themselves. And that's what is so painful about knowing what I know and, and having been the places that I've been um, around this country, um, you know, where you've got where low-income people of all colors, and it's not just the black or brown thing, it really is not, see themselves as truly less than because they happen to have been born in a, so, in a certain socioeconomic status. I mean, it's very hard to shake that. You know, that shame and that embarrassment of being working class, being below, working poor. I mean, Bill, how do you, how do you, like, would you say Nyla is gentrified or would you say that it represents the Chelsea community or the downtown <laughs> dance community? Now, I have a little history here. Um, I did not want to be in Chelsea. Mm. I mean, I love it. Guys are good looking, you know, yeah. in shops and so on. But no, I thought, you know, you're going to do, I mean, this is where Ernie and I cut our teeth there, but that neighborhood, when I saw what it was, I mean, they, there's no, they don't need contemporary dance. And to this day, there are people who live in the neighborhood who say, oh, you know, we don't, we don't really go there because we feel it's like a, a closed, it's a closed shop. It's like for insiders, huh. you know? So gentrification, there are, multi-millionaires throughout that neighborhood and there is this kind of scrappy sense of it being an artist run space that almost feels like anachronism from another time. Mm -hmm. So who is your community? Mm -hmm. You know, and how do you get the people from your community and other places to actually buy into coming there, making work there, seeing work there, 
that's what we're working at right now. Mm. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a different thing. Yes. It's, a, it's a different thing. It's not coincidence that we, a conversation crossing the worlds of arts and politics ends up talking about development. Yeah. Because for a lot of people, it's only at that nexus mm. that they grapple with the arts, that they mm. meet the artists. Oh, they're coming in, bang goes the neighborhood. <laughs> or, oh, they're coming in, yay, the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, this sounds like a ridiculous question, but is that a problem? <laughs> is that worse than it used to be? Where are the other nexus points where art and politics interact or could in a useful way? Well, I, I was thinking that the, the, the taint on the money and the origin of the money. But the thing is when you get, let's say half your building, let's say your building costs 50, $57 million and you get $35 million from the city, mm -hmm. that's taxpayers' money. Like I feel that it's incumbent on those, the people who run those spaces, um, and I feel it's incumbent on us, um, likewise, to make them public. And the only time, in my estimation, that they are public is when people spend $25 or $100 for a ticket. That's not public. That's called the mercantile exchange. So how do we start to behave differently to defamiliarize the behavior of theater goers so that we are really operating as we should, I think, as public parks? Or what, are we a church or are we a 7-Eleven? And you know, mm -hmm. figuring out what the, what a new structure might is be. Is it possible to be running all these organizations and dealing with all this real estate and worrying about all of this and still take risks? Uh, mm. Well, I, I mean, again, I think it's about the size. I mean, that's been my estimation at this point that if it's a, the right sizedness, and your overhead isn't going to cripple you. Right. Um, and, and let's say, let's say, you know, our budget was. Oh, I'll just say my budget was something like six hundred and eighty thousand dollars ten years ago, and now it's something like two point seven million dollars, but we build earned income, we built, we're still philanthropically, you know, um, dependent and all that, but we have all of these vectors of earned income and all these different use groups that come in here. Well, circus, kids, and strip. That's, those are the use groups I chose. So I still think that, I still think that there's a responsibility, a civic duty to, um, to really respect the origin of that money and where it comes from, the origin of it, and um, behave behave differently, I guess, to change our, our, our habits of behavior and seeing. Mm. I mean, how would that happen in development? Like, for instance, would you mix up? I never think rich people want to live with poor people. I mean, I don't know if they call about affordable housing, and I wonder if they actually exercise that. So many nasty things that could be said. Yeah. <laughs> I knew a Canadian diplomat who used to tell me, he was a gay man who was closeted, married, and he used to say, you know, New York is the best value because there are enough poor people and they, and they really, you know, if you're into cruising, if you're into sex, mm. you want to hang out with the poor. Why? Why would you want to hang out with the poor if you're into sex? I don't know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Am I missing something here? No, I'm just not in that world. I, yeah, know. good. I know, I know. But I'm saying that, I mean, I mean, I that's don't. why I'm saying it's a nasty thing to say, which I don't know yeah. if, if you people, but there is, you talk about the relationship of the rich to the poor. Yeah. Uh, the poor, where, one. the poor, where the funk is, where the, the, the fun is. You know, the poor is where you can go play. Because they have nothing to lose. Is that what's happening? Well, they have plenty to lose, but they also are hungry. Exactly. You, you know, it's you, the hunger. You know, you know what sex tourism is? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that, the conversation that, uh, that Jolon Vieira was telling us about with his middle class friends in uh, Bahia, uh, in Salvador, because he, he, he's working with kids in the street in mm -hmm. Capoeira. And he said, you know, you're, you're, you're messing with our, our hunting grounds, man. You know, 
uh, you know, because there's lots of poor people in the street. And there are middle class Brazilians. They happen to be gay men. Right. And that's what the, the, the order is. Those people are there for us to, right. to, to, to use. Right. To, you know, I don't know. You, you pay them, you whatever, you know. $200, let me piss on you, you know. Or, uh, but is, it, is that risky talking? What happened? Absolutely. What happened just there? Talking. Well, we connected well, money and sex. Yeah. Money, sex, power, and race. And, uh, yeah, and that's risky, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. In a room full of well-meaning liberal people, right? Right. Yeah. Anyone want to pick up on this? Because we're we're at a crux of the yeah. conversation, and we're at a crux in our society, where we have increasing disparity. You have massive transformation in our city, with now black flight from here, not mm -hmm. for necessarily good reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have an economy that if we do not figure out how to develop more equitably, mm -hmm. we're going no place. And does America still think it's white? That's what we used to, a friend of mine said, America's tragedy is that it, it's passing for white. As of this <laughs> moment, <laughs> the majority of newborns are people of color. Right. As right. of this moment already. Now let's right. make sure we adjust our conversation here tonight right. to talk to the reality of the demographic shift. But we passed that in 2011 here, like the, new, the 23 county region in New York, like it's no longer majority white. So we Period. are always so, now, yeah. we, well, I think we're using race in a very lax way because we're actually talking about class, aren't that's, we? That, you know? And that's, you a scarier, that's a scarier discussion. Which is where Elizabeth began. Mm -hmm. I mean, one time, Bill, we were in, at the Alvin Ailey studio when it just got made and mm -hmm. I was saying how offensive it was because it was so clean and there were mirrors and maple wood floors and ba ballet bars. And you said, and I said, well, and they told me to take my shoes off. And I said, I didn't want to. And, and you said, I love this studio. You know, remember, and you were saying, we were almost having a fight about, no, I was poorer than you. No, no, I was poorer than you. I didn't have that. No, yes, I did. And then, and then all the students were like, oh, and so we had to stop that conversation. But do you no, recall what it? What were we remember? talking about? Though? We were talking about the beautiful studio. Nice, and I was saying, I didn't nice like things. it. Yeah. Nice things. Right. And I said, I found it uninspiring and just depressing. And mm -hmm. you said you liked it. And then you talked about your background, where you came from. And I was saying, well, I, you know, I was. Well, what a, would Mr. Ailey have thought? You go back to 1958, mm -hmm. right, when he couldn't rent space in Midtown they wouldn't give it to a black choreographer. I just found this out recently from the people from Clark Center. You all hear of Clark Center? Go look them up. Very important. Louise Roberts. No one speaks about her anymore, right? Uh, but he had to go find this. Where would they let you rent a space? So uh, to have a, a room like that, which is luxurious like mm -hmm. that, I'm, are we going to really, can we really talk past race and talk past well, class? Well, I mean, I, I think. I, I, what do you think? Who gets to burn what? fossil fuels? Well, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. Why is yes. the question that we that burn ours, asked. but you can't burn yours? Right. Uh huh. Exactly. Unless you're like uh, extracting them to come over here, and then that's okay. Um, but do you talk about? I mean, I just want to know: is, is it always like you're poor, poor, poor? You know, you you leave a family that you know lay bricks for a living, and then is the goal though to up, be upwardly mobile? The goal is to afford to feel generous in your life you know and and real poverty whether it's in bahia whether it's in you know baghdad or the bronx i don't really care where it is i mean what it does is destroy your ability to feel as though you have the capacity to contribute to anything mm. and that is the true shame of what it does and so developing new ways to just i mean 
I don't think that most of the things that we're going to be doing with that model is going to make everybody a, a millionaire. I don't. But I do think that it's going to give them opportunities to be paid a living wage and be able to pay their own way. And that, I think, is something that is not afforded to a lot of folks out there. And, and it has an impact on them, on the communities they live in, on their kids, on the people that are around them. And when you can't, when you don't feel as though you have, you can afford to be generous, you become really tight. And there's just no giving that's allowed, that, that you feel as though you can afford to do. And Although in terms of who actually gives what, poor people give more than rich people. Yeah. How do you mean give? A lot in the oh, church. Well, I'm thinking of actual giving of what they yeah. earn and have to causes, to charities, to church, to community, to each other. I thought you meant other. that in terms, let's say, in the world of fashion, oh, there please. is an engine well, in the lower classes, uh -huh. an mm -hmm. engine of innovation right. and risk and mm -hmm. daring, too. bad taste that percolates up, yeah. and then somebody plucks it, yep. That's why it's such a merchandises it, and um, then sells it back, and then it comes up again, 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 again. Can you that's say hip-hop? Like, <laughs> can you say hip-hop? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, that's mean. why you can't have development and growth and an economy that functions without diversity. Right, exactly. Diversity drives, innovation. among other things, innovation, mm -hmm. new markets, yep. you name it. If you, you need to put it in those terms, it's in those terms. But Laura, do you think that's what I just said, though? I think that Quite frankly, this is a very cynical thing I'm about to say. The pressure cooker is actually good for for because I'm saying you keep that pressure uh -huh. cooker down here and it keeps generating and it bubbles up and you pluck it off and you sell it back there. You have to keep that down. You have to you need an underclass. You, do you really um, think you need well, an underclass? I'm being I'm being somewhat cynical, but that's the way the model has as worked it, as in it, the as West. As it works right now, not the way that it always has to work. Okay, because you're the visionary that has an idea of what it can be different, how right. it can be different. Exactly, because, yeah. because you're absolutely right. Like we're, you know, the whole extractive nature of, of everything that's good in our community is taken out and someone else benefits from it, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to the folks mm -hmm. who are already there. And again, that goes, and that's across color lines. I mean, if you think about coal country, mm. very white people. Um, most of the ones who live there do not benefit from that at all. They're like huge companies that do so, and, oh, we and do. it doesn't go back. Huh? No, 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 no. I'm talking about the companies that own the coal, as opposed to the people that are either at one point worked the mines and now just unfortunately live in a toxic brew. But um, the, the real core of it is how do we, like, do we trust communi those communities enough to believe that they have the capacity to be the keys to their own recovery? Say it again, one moment. Do we trust that those communities themselves have the capacity to be the, the, the keys to their own recovery? And that like, we're trying to do that with technology. It's like, you know, we're, you know, poor folks, and in particular, like in, in poor urban communities, a less than a third of the people under 50 have bank accounts, two thirds of the people under 50 have smartphones. So we're huge consumers of technology not big producers of it. How do we flip that dynamic so that the folks in communities like ours are actually starting to create the next big thing that is going to not just create an app, you know, for, because most apps right now are made for people whose lives are already pretty cool. But imagine if there was a whole slew of people mm -hmm. around the world that were trying their hardest to create and had the skills to use technology to figure out how do we use technology to actually make mm -hmm. life better for other for the for the rest of us that 
would be crazy. That would be taking that beautiful pressure cooker thingy and, and, and channeling it so that it circulates right back. Mm. That's what's cool. But, well, I was just thinking about one, there's a problem with education, but separate oh, from that, just a you little. know, to make the next great widget, you really, you need some great education mm -hmm. system, which clearly this country doesn't have. But I was thinking too of just when we're artists, let's say, I think everyone is an artist because you're inventing things all the time, but then you're making, you're trying to make a language that the every person can comprehend. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and we are fighting, I fight, to try and figure out, hey, I'm not feeding people, I'm not housing them. How could I possibly be spending all this time putting on shows? Like, I must rationalize that somehow. But if I could create a language that ends up being so archetypal, let's say for those who labor, for those who basically you know, get in accidents, for those people who really um, you know, uh, uh, don't need to be told a story but want to have an experience. Like I start to think about what is the permeability of a uh, vocabulary that would speak to the every person out you there. You talk about, I'm talking your, about would your parents feel they could walk into this space? What, right, my parents, I was adopted and they were very working class. Um, and I always thought I came from royal blood of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> so I could, I love being adopted. Then I thought, oh, well, I, they are not my parents. I could, really anyone could be. But, but I think that, no, and my sister, my adopted sister is a member of the working poor in, in, in Michigan and we, and I just, I don't, you know, the thing about it is she was embarrassed. She came to see us once for the first time, maybe 10 years ago in Chicago. And, I, and we were doing two shows and she'd never ever seen my work before. And then the next, she had another chance to see it the next day and she went shopping or she didn't come to the theater. And, all, and I didn't realize till years later, she was embarrassed. Mm. People in the theater made her feel bad. How, because, how so? Because she didn't know how to dress. She probably smelled differently. She, um, didn't know how to behave. And, mm. and, and, and my big tortured trauma is I believe that any theater in this country, and probably even this one, um, does not, the, 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 the underclass would not go to those places. Mm -hmm. And they're not designed to make them feel <clears throat> comfortable. Is there somebody there who, who has an idea that can hit up, that can make somebody themselves and somebody uptown a lot of money where is the investment coming from um the and so this is this is yeah. in, in a way and how do you get the people into that audience that you want to be there mm -hmm. so you need a corporation to subsidize tickets right well I, I don't know those are all unanswered questions i think i'd rather some magic some magic alchemy mm -hmm. but that speaks in answer, in a sense, to your point about the pressure cooker. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'll say, you know, my risky thought right now, I thought it was going to be about cynicism, where you mm -hmm. began. Now I feel it's about idealism, mm -hmm. that I am risky enough to believe that actually if we met more of each other, we would like each other more. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. sort of the theory of media. So who is the we in that sense? <laughs> we as a society, we as a people. Can we really as a take that people. kind of bite though, Laura? Well, I I'm saying, so it's risky for me to say mm -hmm. I believe in something because you're right, it's not as simple as all this. No, I mean, really, it, it's really so hard excited. for me to feel part of any mass we right now, other than the we that is born, grows, and will certainly die. Now, other than that, that's a pretty big we. That and that is the only we I understand really, right? I don't know if the soul exists. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything. Everything else is faith and belief. And we're going to talk about the risk of having faith. Oh, no faith. 
Well, you said idealism. Idealism is a kind of a religion, right? It's a, it, you have to buy into it. There's no guarantee what's right. going to happen, but you've got to buy into it. You've right. got to give yourself to it. And I don't know, Mr. Ms. Live Action over here. <laughs> what about idealism when you don't well, know? I, the, the, you know, when you just don't know. Well, I, I also thought I, I always would um, have an argument with Laura's grandfather, Robert Gorham Davis, who taught at all these elite universities. And when I told him, he said, "Where did you go to school?" And I said, "SUNY Brockport." He goes, "Rockport?" I said, "Brockport." <laughs> What's SUNY mean? Never mind. State <laughs> <laughs> University. <laughs> And I, I, he, he, he was a complete atheist, I guess. Uh, I, I, no, anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway, I would go there, but he, he spent the last 20 years of his life studying the Bible. Mm. And I kept trying to, I, I would think up, we went there once or twice a year, and I'd think up questions to ask him. Well, what about uh, Veronica, who put, burst through the crowd and... You know, he left the impression oh, of his face Veronica. on the, yeah. And then he, he defined it for me and said, well, that's um, completely fake. And they made it up afterwards. And anyway, I could never catch him except for on this. Okay. So let's say idealism. You're alive, right? There's no reason to believe in anything after. But I figure, well, I'm going to believe in a higher power. Because, you know, okay, so here's one scenario. I believe in a higher power. It makes me happier. I have faith. Some, I always say, could you help me? And I get helped. And it seems to work out okay to stay optimistic. And then let's say I, the optimist or the idealist, I die. And it's not true. Well, who cares? I'm dead, you know. But the other person, the other person who doesn't believe in God and argues with everybody who does, and not God, but any higher power, whatever you want to call it, spirit world. And then they die and they realize, oh, no. I was wrong, you know, then it's really too late, you know. <laughs> that would be a risk. <laughs> so, right? Do I have the group's permission? <laughs> I, I think we've gone through property, class, race, <laughs> sex, development. How does change happen? How do, we, how do economic, economies move forward? Now we're on to God. I think we should take well, a break. I, but you know, I, I wasn't going to God. I said I want to bring ideal, them in. idealism is a type of religion. Yeah. And it doesn't has nothing to do with God. It's gotta be. We haven't got enough fact to really motivate us. Yeah. To, 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 it you know, it's not uh, it it's not justified belief. It's just belief. Well what's that postcard um, Although that's postcard. Not true. It is justified belief. We are in a better place as society. History has progressed, I do believe so. <laughs> I am I do believe. This country even, if you just want to talk about the United States, mm -hmm. has progressed from completely hypocritical ideals mm -hmm. to a slightly Disorder. closer embrace. Yeah. I'm with you. I, I got you. I'm because with of you. people's yeah. movements, because of mobilization, not by the weather or God or chance, although maybe all that helped, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but organizing, thinking. What's that postcard, a guy playing the saxophone, and it says, sometimes you have to believe in something before you can see it. And that's just magical thinking in a certain mm. way. Yes. So well, you have the story about the um, running of the four-minute mile. Yeah, but for many, many years, people thought it actually would kill you. <laughs> and then as soon as 1954 comes along and somebody shaves that second off the, 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 the four-minute mile. Six-tenths of a second. Those six-tenths of a second. <laughs> then that record continues to be broken over and over again in the following years. Right. Because people yeah. saw that it could be done. Yeah, that was in 1954, um, and then in, by 1966, they shaved 16 seconds off of the four-minute mile. And, and they told Chuck Yeager he wouldn't be able to break the speed of sound because the physicist said that his, his machine would be 
would be would burst into dust. And he intuitively didn't believe that. And hey, mm -hmm. so maybe we don't need the pressure cooker of misery. Oh, you know what? I, my faith is that we do not. And there are people who I have faith in who are doing it. My question tonight is, do I have the stuff to keep the faith? That's, that's the honest deal. Now, why do, you, why do you think you don't? Because I live in here. And you live out here, too. Yeah. Uh, are you sure? Positive. Yes, we're all sure. We've seen yeah. you. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. There's a dream in the forest. It's dark. There's a thing, a monster. I'm hiding. He's looking. At any moment, he's going to find out I'm there. Start walking. Start walking. Start running. He's running. Start flying. Flying. He's flying. I'm flying high, 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 high. I can't. I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do this. Boom, it falls. Since six, that dream. Mm. Right? Now I begin to understand what it means. Right? What that is, you know, what, that's my confidence idea. Like, what is this falling? Yeah? So, yeah, I, I thank you for your faith. But, you know, each one of us has got to solve that problem for mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. The creature behind you, right? When do you turn around and say, come on, motherfucker? Exactly. Yeah. Well, easy, <laughs> yeah, easy to say. Uh, no, it's not easy to say, and it's not easy to do either, but you do it. That's what risk is. I mean, who am I talking to for the love of God? I mean, come on, bro. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're just trying to talk real, my sister. That's, I hear it. Okay, because I think, I think in a symposium like this, the tendency is for us to, to actually speak as if we're of one mind and there's a lot of rant. You oh. know? Not can't, I'm sorry. And I think that we, as, as progressive people, have got to be cutting that shit down all the time. And it, sometimes it looks like negativism. That, can you look at it right now? Can you look it in the mouth, right? That's all I'm doing here tonight. I'm only speaking as a private citizen, not Filthy Jones the icon, right? Mm -hmm. This is the man who is real time speaking. That, when I'm talking to young folks, they got to see that real man is there, uh -huh. and yet he gets out of bed every day, mm -hmm. and he shows up. But, but, but that's what, I, go ahead. Yeah, but that's, yes. that is the challenge. That you, you know, that that dream you have, that fear you have, the fear that we all have, mm -hmm. that we can't, that we won't measure up, that you know, we're going to look in, in the mirror and that person's going to be laughing at you, all that crap, mm -hmm. believe me. And you do what you do in spite of all that. Mm -hmm. And that's what's, I think, the difference between folks who will, will step up and take those risks and, you know, we'll have the scars in our neck from folks trying to cut it off and you still daggone get up and do it. Um, that's the hard part. I'm, I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm afraid almost all the time. Mm -hmm. But but it doesn't stop you. No. And that's a discipline, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Me too. You too. Yes. Can we invite them in? Why not? Yeah. Do we have agreement. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. There's a hand over there. Okay, hand over there. I'm doing the uh, running around thing. Terry Jackson. Hi there. Right. So. So in, in, when I first heard about this event, and I, I was really excited because I, I'm actually fans of, of all of you, and uh, the question, I, I was hoping that I would get the microphone. Uh, the question that I have is, is, is sort of a challenge to you, and, and that is, I, I really wanted to ask you, uh, and after hearing you speak, uh, how dare you, how dare you uh, be able to achieve uh, what you have achieved? And, and uh, 
And that is one of the things that I, 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 I try to figure out in my daily life and work and love and play mm. is how to do it. And you guys have done it and uh, to, to a certain extent and a, and a great extent. Doing it. And I think a lot of people would like to know just how, what is your motivation? What, when you wake up in the morning, Majora, when you wake up in the morning, how do you get out of bed and do what you do? And Bill, how do you do that? I get up and do something fabulous for myself. Um, I work out, uh, and then I start my day. And I do it because I feel compelled. You know, and I, and I feel, truly feel like I've got something to offer. And, and yeah, and it is a dare because I wasn't kidding when I said that I'm fearful most of the time. I wasn't kidding. Um, you know, I know I walk into a room and I've got this history, you know, that, that you know, crossed with me from the, from the middle passage um, that was here, you know, with all my ancestors before I got here. Mm. And so, yeah, so the question is how dare I brings really true to me. Just, it is a really big one. And then mm -hmm. I ask myself, well, if not me, I mean, why not me? Why not me? Hmm. Hmm. I am just theatrical, you know. <laughs> Before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. Okay, do I have to say more, right? It sounds almost like that spider again. I'll beat the motherfuckers, god damn it. God damn it. You know, yes, what does Maya say? Go on, you've been paid for. All of you have been paid for, right? That's one way of saying it. And it's not, it's overly theatrical and hot, but one thing, the other part of that is, you're just doing, particularly when you're young. Yeah. Right? <laughs> particularly when you're young, and it's like all lifting and resisting gravity, right? You know, it, it just, it, you do it. It comes out of you. And then one day, someone says, you're full of shit. Yeah. Now, that's when it gets interesting, particularly if you're a fragile ego, and you are always sort of relating, maybe they're right. That's what you're asking. Yes. How do you keep going against the winds? Mm -hmm. People love you. People love you. People want you to, even if it's a lie, yeah. I need you to lie to me, man. Yeah. Particularly people that you care for or who offer you the opportunity to care. Yes. And that's it, because you know, by nature, we're not always caring, but it's people need for you to show up. Mm -hmm. Then it gets even harder. When they grow up, they're gone. Why are you still doing it, motherfucker? <laughs> and that's where the winds get really strong. And that's how we got to the question of idealism as faith. In infrastructure of the Southern Baptist, a believer, but not the faith in God. Mm. That's how it's happening, and it's real time. It ain't over yet. What about the messages we get from others? Mm. Mm -hmm. I grew up with my, my father was in a wheelchair. He had polio in World War II. Mm -hmm. He had a Broadway show from a wheelchair. He had a Broadway show from a wheelchair? Twice. Wow. Two Broadway shows from a wheelchair. 
Who's your father? Michael Flanders, Flanders and Swan. Ah. Hmm. I grew up with, you're not in a wheelchair. Hmm. What have you done with yourself lately? <laughs> mm. wow. Wow. So it's, I'll admit, it's not self-motivation solely. It's those voices. Mm -hmm. What forgiveness would there be for me? Mm. You loved him and you did not want to disappoint him? And his voice and my grandmother's voice in my head today. I think that's, what we're, yeah, that's, that's my feeling as well. Yeah. And then there are whole communities of people. Look at that. She is an uppity negress, oh. right? Yes, and I she's, am. And she's is there a voice in your head? Yeah. Which one? <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> there, are, there are many. <laughs> so it's self-motivated, but yeah. it's also mm. other motivated. And that can yeah. sometimes be horrendous, Oof. and that can sometimes be good. Question. Um, Ms. Streb, you were saying earlier, those who search are lost. The people who are searching are lost. I mean, you were quoting someone else, but I, I wonder, um, it seems like the best leaders have searched, and you all seem to be leaders. I mean, the things that you're saying, the things you've been doing are so powerful. And so I wonder, how can you be a leader and lost? Well, I think that the, um, no, no one's right, right? I mean, none of us are right. Like, we do our thing to the best, we, right. we put, we wake up, I mean, I wake up every day and thank God I'm still curious. And I think if I woke up every day and I didn't wonder, then I would be sunk. But um, I think that it's, I, I, I've thought of this sentence, like, especially for younger people, they should have a course in college, you know. Um, it should be um, basic training for tough souls, because mostly you get rejected. Yeah. And I think if you can stay optimistic and like, oh, that was fun, mm -hmm. you know, when you, you know, either get terrible reviews or, you know, you look out and there's no one. I mean, I think all of us have gone through, like, you get someplace and there's six people in the audience. Yeah. And then I used to just cross my eyes and pretend it was completely full. Um, <laughs> or I would say, sure. those six people yeah, are my audience. <laughs> I mean, failure comes in many forms. Yeah. And I think it's how you look at that event. And if you're going to assign failure to it, um, then that's a problem. Right. And failure is just, you know, I mean, it's, it's a beta test. You got to try stuff out. And that's how you can learn and refine things. Otherwise, then I think that's when you're really lost, when you think you're done and there's no place to go. It's more of like figuring stuff out and that's, that's the fun part. But that gets, I mean, my twist on that question is for you, for you, for you, for me, all of us who are in a sense trying to encourage people to feel empowered, mm -hmm. what if also at the back of our minds is the thought, maybe we don't have any agency. Maybe we can't stop the, wa the water rising. We can't, but you can do something. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, otherwise you just like go crazy and it's boring. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, wait a minute, crazy is Let's not boring. No, 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 you'll go crazy and that's boring. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what, wait, oh, we're heading to the woman in green. Thank you. Um, you've all spoken a bit about how continuing to show up is maybe one of the keys to your success. Your achievements have been because you kept showing up despite the fears, the self-doubt, the monster chasing you, everything else. Um, and I, I agree with that entirely. 
I think, though, we've all come across individuals, um, groups, sometimes whole communities, where either because they never believed in the power of showing up or because they kept showing up and kept being knocked down that eventually they stopped doing so. In your experience, what, can, what have you done, what can others do as a group, as individuals, to reverse that, to get people to start showing up again when we encounter people who stop doing so? And, and what are things maybe that you've done or tried to do uh, to inspire that and, and failed? Showing up, you don't just show up and just say, I'm here without a plan or intention. And I think that that, it, that in and of itself is how you're supposed to show up. Just showing up doesn't necessarily get you where you want to be. And I think that's, that is a mistake that I've seen a lot of people make, where it's just sort of like, I'm here. It's like, so, big deal. You know what? There's a lot of, there, guess there's almost how many billion of us now? And um, yeah, I I'm, like, I'm not even sure anymore. But, um, but I think that that's, that is the case. And I think we also do have to really look at, you know, how do we show up? Are we showing up in a way that's inviting people in? Or are we going out of our way to push them away? And that's something that, you know, guess what? For the most part, your audience, your respective audience, will tell you. Um, no one, if it's six people, as far as I'm concerned, those are the right six people. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and uh, they'll probably let you know exactly what you needed to know. That's true. Mm -hmm. Helen Caldicott, the uh, anti-nuclear campaigner and doctor, tells a story about having gone to the a church basement in the 1980s as part of the anti-nuclear movement, and there were three people there. She was tired, she fed up, almost didn't give the speech. But one of those three turned out to be Jonathan Shell, who wrote the bestseller, Fate of the Planet, mm -hmm. that mobilized a whole movement. I think about that when I see those yeah. three. And sometimes when you think about people not showing up, we talk about people not voting, we talk about people not participating. In a society like ours that puts so many obstacles in the way of people who want to participate, particularly those who are marginalized in our society, it is miraculous how many keep showing up, how often to vote, to play a role, to, po to, to watch those polls, to participate in both our electoral process, our extra outside electoral process, keep going to demonstrations, who showed up this summer for the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington mm -hmm. for freedom and jobs, when it wasn't easy, who voted in the primaries and the election in this city when it wasn't easy for them, who voted last year to reelect, uh, you know, to, to reelect a president um, in the last presidential election when it wasn't easy for many of them, many of them dealing with weather disasters and everything that, that you had talked about. So I think it's sometimes our mindset needs to be to appreciate those who are there instead of constantly looking around and saying, why aren't there more or why aren't they different or why aren't they doing something else? Let's get the mic down to here. Is there one more? You started off <clears throat> talking about uh, what the situation looked like in 1913 and they could not have imagined the war, World mm -hmm. War I, but they also couldn't have imagined the Bolshevik Revolution and that mm -hmm. the whole first part of the 20th century would be class struggle. Mm -hmm. And this whole conversation 
I'm struck. It's all creativity mixing with class struggle. And uh, one other data point to add to what Laura said, McKinsey Group, which is hardly a left-wing organization, <laughs> um, last year issued analysis saying that uh, 35 trillion of global wealth is outside of the taxation system, not being used to feed people mm -hmm. or available for public goods or to support the arts, but rather secreted away in tax havens. And it is 35 trillion controlled by 400,000 individuals. Uh, we've never had a moment like this in the history. One more time, that statistic again, yeah, please. So, uh, 400,000 people basically have tax havened away 35 trillion of the global wealth. And we've never had anything like this before in human right. history. And I don't understand why we could have such an extreme class moment. And we don't see it informing the art. We don't see it being something that, as here we are in hipster Williamsburg, that <laughs> as I wander around Williamsburg, I see art, music, struggle that is informed by this deep, deep class division right. that globalization has created. And how does, how does that inform your work? Well, I, I mean, I think that, that that's the thing that we, we have to walk outside of these neighborhoods, you know, and, no, and we, have to, we have to, I mean, what, what story am I, am I telling the story of an upwardly mobile 63-year-old woman who, you know, 63 years ago, or 61 year, years ago, came from a very working class family, but I knew that I wanted to get out of Dodge. And I think that's one of my perturbations, that I feel that uh, I can't tell everyone's story, mm. but I can, I can have my memory, mm. and I remember the signifiers of that memory. And for some reason or other, when you're younger, those wounds dig deeper. And if you've had people you know who never got out of poverty, or who were starting kind of in the middle class, lower middle class I, I started in and went way south, because that is what happened. There was no more of that job in the factory and you pass it on to all your, and, and so you're watching people. So, so I may be here and I may be there and I think that it plagues me about what message, you know, not only can I, can I put on stage, but also um, I, I feel that I'm responsible for the audience mm -hmm. and I'm, with this space, trying to take responsibility of who walks in the door. But on the other hand, I don't walk into poor neighborhoods and hand them tickets. Like, that's my, that is my um, fallout. I don't know, how do you change the class of the people who come in here? Um, and I think it's part of my job. Can, can I just remind you, you sound pretty astute. You know, Tatlin and Milovich, those guys, they had this idea that there was that brief period after the revolution when the artists were actually leading before there was a crackdown. But they were, an interesting thing was that they had this idea of a kind of uh, progressive art that's going to be non this and non that. And what did the people want? Classical ballet. Mm -hmm. They wanted, you know, pretty pictures. Uh, so let's be, you know, let's be clear that the people, sometimes, the best that you can do is to present people an image of something that is an escape. Mm -hmm. They will trust you. It's honest in a way. Because when you start preaching to them, and believe me, I know about preaching, right? <laughs> you know? But when you start preaching to them, they roll their eyes. Yeah. You know? I want you to, to pass the mic up here. And while you're doing that, I'll just say to answer your question another way. Um, Elisa Solomon. And I and, and a delegation went to Hungary earlier this year 
where we watch the art coming out of the theater world in resistance to the revival of fascism in Hungary. And it was in every theater piece that we saw. And the question of the Hungarians to us was, where is it in the US art and in the American art? And, yet the, and, and the art they were celebrating that came from the United States was Angels in America is what they put on the stage of their national theater. And it left us wondering, what is the art that is dealing with the class struggle of today? And all I can say is we have had 50 years, almost a century now, of philanthropic funding to ensure that that not happen. <laughs> that what not That that not happen. That a culture of class, theater, and art, and expression not catch hold in the United States. And a lot of it is caught hold anyway. I believe there's a lot out there perkling up. And maybe what we recognize as art, what we need to train ourselves, maybe not just to recognize art on the stage of a theater, but recognize art in the cooperative, the worker cooperative that somebody's making in Far Rockaway to try to keep some wealth in their community. Mm -hmm. Maybe the worker cooperative that's being created on Pine Ridge by local indigenous entrepreneurs who want to keep wealth you know, on their reservation. Maybe we need to look at creativity coming up in different ways and it's not all gonna be on the stage. Right. It may be in the workplace because that's the most urgent place right now. But that's my optimism talking again. Last question. Um, Liz, earlier you talked about how to make a place like this from the outside look more than just bricks and mortar and glass to somebody walking and making it inviting and it kind of I was thinking about what Majora, what you said about how people don't feel worthy of some things in their communities when it doesn't reflect like the work that you're doing in here and art and um, creative space. It doesn't reflect where they live. And I kind of, not coming full circle on this question, but I wanted to ask what you think the main parts are, the, what you can pinpoint down uh, for somebody to find in themselves worthy of taking part in their community and the things that go on in their community and also giving back to their community. Like what makes them feel like they can have it versus when they're living in this scarcity mindset and they mm -hmm. feel like they can't give anything. Mm -hmm. What are the little things or the points that- can I, can I just throw it back at you? It sounds like you might have an answer to that question. Oh, no, I do not. <laughs> what makes you feel differently? Yeah. Um, it's just, for me, it's always been like, do what you can and, um, go wherever you please. I've always had that mindset, ask questions. But I know a lot of people who have not grown up with that or do not have a voice because they never thought they could have one. So did somebody get in your ear saying you can do it? Yeah, my parents when I was younger, yeah. um, you know, from a very young age. But I don't think that people can, pe that people are stuck that way. I feel like their surroundings can help them break out. And I, I don't know, but I would like to know or if you guys have any idea or inkling what are those little things in your community that can make you feel like, oh, I can be an engaged member right. versus just walk to work, come back to my apartment, you know? There are three things that anyone, everyone needs in order to feel whole. Someone to love, mm -hmm. something to do, and something to feel hopeful about. You have those three things and the infrastructure to allow them all to go grow together and the respect that makes it all happen, then you're fine. Um, but 
so many folks have are missing one or more of those things, and and it's this is not necessarily the, the someone to love is not necessarily a lover, or a spouse or whatever. It's it's just is there something out there that's bigger than you that's that's drawing you in and making you feel as though there's something that you can aspire to? Do you feel as though what you have is something that you can contribute to something getting better, even if it's just like your friend helping them do something nice? I don't really care, but. When that doesn't happen, and in communities where I've seen that, that where people are not given an opportunity to be themselves and to be the beautiful creations that they are, that's when things start to switch. That's when people start doing really alienating things to themselves and to each other. I'm asking, I don't know, where we are again with the question of faith, mm. idealism, yeah. what do you believe? There's no, there is no book. There's no book, if you put the Bible aside, there's no guide, instruction manual as to how you make it through this place and how do we avoid the next calamity. There's no book. There are a few brave individuals. On that, let's go out and see those bathrooms. <laughs> Elizabeth Streb, Majora Tada, Bill T. Jones, and you. Thank you.